The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I want to start off this sermon with two quick disclaimers. Uh, first off, we need to ensure that we're basing our perspectives on Scripture. We always want to make sure that our belief systems are not divine, de- devised based on tradition or what we've always felt like doing, because if we do things according to our own plans, our own desires, our own traditions, we will ultimately fall short of what God has called us to do. Rather, we need to make sure that we are building our foundation on the Word of God itself. So today, we're mainly going to be considering the right way to initiate church planting. This is like the genesis of church planting here in Acts chapter 13. We want to make sure that we get the first stages right. If the seed is planted well, then the plant grows well. Because we are a church plant, it would be very easy for me to simply rely on my experience and tell you this is what worked well and this is what didn't work well. I'm not going today to take a pragmatic approach like that. I'm not going to simply tell you, here's where I think we have succeeded and here's where I think we have failed. The goal of preaching the word is that the Bible will be the thing that sheds light on God's will. So as popular as church planting has become in recent years, it is astounding to see just how mechanical and formulaic many people have tried to make it. The church is not a business, and it is not designed to be a business. Therefore, when, it is tri- when we try to uh, make it operate like a business or operate it upon business principles, we often fail to do what God has desired for us to do. The church is designed to be a vibrant organism designed by God and expanded by the Holy Spirit. So as I present this information today, I want you to watch carefully to see that my admonitions are actually grounded in the word of God and not simply made up. These are not based on my own experience. Secondly, it is not my intention to boast about any successes that we have had. If last week's sermon taught us anything, it's that we are not to steal God's glory. I do not want to stand here and attempt to get in between what God has done and what God and God himself. I do not want you to look at me and say, Caleb did something well. I don't want to be eaten by worms. It is all about God. This is all about what God has done and anything that we have done well here and any gains that we have made as a church plant are in spite of me and in spite of our elders, not because of us. It is because God has been faithful. Now I say this because there are many things that we have done well, I believe. I think there's many things that we have gotten right, but the reason we have done them well or gotten them right is not because we are naturally smart people. It is because we have seen what God has shown us in the word of God, and we have done our best to model what we are doing after the apostles themselves. The book of Acts is not an epistle. It is not a letter to a church. It is rather a history book. It is a narrative. And that's why in the book of Acts, there are zero occasions when there are commands commands for us to obey. He is not writing to us and saying, you must now do this. Rather, in the book of Acts, we learn by example. We see what God has done, 
and how he has determined to do it. And occasionally we see what we are not to do, like Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and getting struck dead, or Herod stealing the glory from God and being struck dead. We see what we are to do by what God shows us the apostles doing in this book. The book of Acts teaches us by way of example, and the goal of today's sermon is not to feel any pride in the efforts that we have done so far at this church. It could be very easily, it could seem like that. It could be like a, a ninth grader who gets their report card at home and it has all A's and they are just filled with pride. Our church must not look at itself and seek to be joyous in that. Just God gave us all A's here. Rather, the goal today is to firm up our doctrine surrounding this very important task of advancing God's kingdom, one church plant at a time. And in order to do that, we are going to zoom in on four truths that are clearly revealed here in this passage. So we're going to begin with point number one, church planting equals missions. And as you know, if you know anything about math, which I know very little, but I still know this, is that in an equation, you can alter uh, basically what is on each side of the equal sign you can swap it around, and it's still always true. 1 plus 2 equals 3. 2 plus 1 also equals 3. Or 3 equals 2 plus 1. You can move the numbers around, and they will still equal one another. Church planting equals missions. Missions equals church planting. Both of those statements are true and necessary for us to understand. We always have to be very careful with vocabulary, right? Words mean something. The problem is it's very possible that we could be using the same word but have very different definitions. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary website, the three most commonly misunderstood words in the English language are as follows. And this surprised me. Here are the three words that people most often in print, meaning journalists, newspapers, magazines, these are the three words that people most often use incorrectly. Droll, travesty, and chronic. I thought I understood these words. You might want to look them up before you use them. But it's important to understand people use words all the time without actually really knowing their definition. Missions and church planting are not Bible words, meaning that they do not appear in the Bible. However, they do refer to concepts and realities that are deeply biblical. Just like the word Trinity is never found on the pages of your scripture, but the reality of the Godhead is ubiquitous throughout the, the Bible. So, in a similar way, the nature of church planting and the nature of missions is all over the pages of Scripture. But here's the danger for us. If we are not really careful, we can take these words and we can overlay them on the Bible and we can overlay our expectations and our own personal explanations of what these are. And then we can say, this is what church planting is and we can define it apart from the word of God. We can do so by not accurately describing what is actually happening in the Bible. For example, if you went to many different mission boards or church planting organizations, you will likely discover that they have many projects in place that have nothing to do with what is actually taking place in the book of Acts. The goal of Paul and Barnabas is clear. Their mission is to go out into the world and start more churches. How do we know that that's their goal? It's obvious because everything they are doing for the rest of the book is going out and planting more churches. And the only other purpose that they have at any point is to go and encourage and strengthen the churches that already exist. Any missionary that is sent out into the field should have the ultimate goal of seeing people saved and churches started. Missions is all about 
the church, planting them, establishing them, supporting them, renewing them. Sadly, many people have settled for caring for social needs rather than spiritual ones. Now, I'm not saying that social care is bad. I am saying that is not the end goal or the desired outcome of missions. Handing out blankets and water bottles and rice and backpacks full of school supplies can be a great way to start a relationship and to show a community that you care for them. I have done all of those things and I think they are good things, but that is not the goal of missions. If the purpose of a ministry ever becomes focused on temporary or earthly needs, then it will only succeed in achieving temporary and earthly ends and then it will leave eternal souls to wallow in the wrath that they are under. To give an example, I worked for the Salvation Army uh, for a short period of time. Actually, it was in Italy, so it was called the Militarezza della Salvezza, which I actually like the sound of that much better. Um, The problem is that it was uh, a lot of army and no salvation. We gave it a lot of meals every morning and every evening. We had people there lined up out the door ready for a handout but there was never a single avenue or pursuit of sharing the gospel with those people. That's not missions. Real missionary work has the goal of seeing the church founded or revitalized or reinvigorated. Consider Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. That's an incredible statement. We could just stop there and just... Soak in that for a while. God is able, you think God has been gracious to you? You cannot imagine how much God can do and will do in your life. And then he says, without even a period, to him be glory in the church. He makes a point here that this is not just something that is at random or individualistic. We as Americans tend to be individualistic people. We like our independence, July 4th and all that. But to him be glory in the church. We are called to be a body of believers and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The point that he is making here in this prayer is that we are called not to be Lone Ranger Christians, but to be gathered together as a body. And you never see Paul going out and arbitrarily sharing the gospel and then leaving a convert by themselves to just fend for themselves. Rather, the goal of missions in the New Testament is always either to plant a new church or to strengthen those that already exist. There is no occasion from this point forward of anyone being converted without those missionaries then planting themselves in that place until they can move forward with a church firmly established. It is their goal to ensure that if there is a believer, there will be a group of believers and God will establish leaders for those believers. And those churches are formed and that is what missions looks like in the book of Acts. There is no biblical category for missions apart from the church in scripture. Missions is all about the church. Point number two, churches plant churches. How does one go about planting a church? It's really important to understand that there is a design that God has set in place for church planting. This is not something that we are just supposed to make up or do on our own will, uh, however we feel uh, uh, like we should do it. Sometimes the best way to explain the right way to do something is to just give a few examples of things that are wrong, ways that people have done this inappropriately. So what I want to do is I want to share with you two real life stories that I observed 
over the past four years of our church plant existing so that we can make sure that we avoid such things. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of specifics. I don't want you to go researching and figuring out what these churches are. Rather, I hope that this will actually be constructive for us and that we look forward to the time that God might allow us to plant a church so that we can do things well. As a caveat, it should be noted that there are churches who started off very poorly, that they had no sense of ecclesiology. They did all of the wrong things, yet by the grace of God, they were able to hear the word, to be taught the word, to be transformed, and to become a healthy church. That can happen. But we don't want to be cleaning up a lot of our own messes. It's our desire to get things right the first time. So I present for your consideration uh, two problematic examples. Exhibit A. Several years ago, I was made aware of a church that was upstate that was going through some turmoil because of, not, not because of, of, of a lot of sin in the church, but because of a different perspective about how the church should operate. There was a, a pastor who had one philosophy of ministry and then an associate pastor who had a very different idea about how the church should run. So the associate pastor decided, you know what, I'm going to start a home Bible study and I won't tell the pastor about it, and I'm going to begin inviting everyone in the church to this thing. And uh, even as he was doing this, he was intentionally seeking to draw as many people out of that church as he possibly could. And even while he was still receiving a paycheck, he secretly began the process of trying to get funded by a church planting organization so that he could plant his own church. After several months, this man was foolishly approved by a church planting network, and at that point, he, he lassoed in as many people as he could from his church where he was on staff, and he told them, please come with me because this church is doing things all wrong and we want to do things a different way. And the result was two churches. Functionally speaking, you could look at that from an outsider perspective and say, success, church A, church B, amen. The problem is they planted by way of division rather than by way of multiplication. This is not what we see happening in the Bible. Now he just had two broken and hurting groups of people with something like a metaphorical Berlin wall between them, and they were planting in separation from one another, not just geographically, but emotionally there's a wall. Spiritually, they have built a wall between themselves, and they have now viewed themselves as enemies rather than friends working together for the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas did not split the church at Antioch. They were commissioned. They were sent out. Why? Because churches plant churches. Exhibit B. After I graduated from seminary in December of 2014, I stayed in Kentucky for about the next seven months, seven or eight months, and I just worked in order to raise money to get back here while I, uh, I worked at a furniture store and at a church as a youth minister. Uh, my time at the furniture store was actually, I think, very helpful. It's good to be back in, in uh, the workforce where you're actually physically working with your hands and unloading trucks and moving around thousands of couches. Uh, most of the guys that I worked with, though, they were not from the world. Most of the guys that I worked with were actually seminary students or seminary graduates who were able to come in and all work in this place. Uh, one of the guys who worked there was always talking to me about, about church planting. He knew I was coming up here to plant this church. He knew that there was something on the horizon. He wanted to ask a lot of questions. He wanted to tell me all of his perspectives about church planting. And he was 
having a very difficult time finding a pastoral job anywhere. So I didn't know this at the time, but what he was doing was he was actually planning to start his own church because no other church would hire him. So he just decided, as far as I can understand, it's all on me. I'm just going to start my own thing. When Paul was in Tarsus for nearly a decade before going to Antioch, he did not plant a church. Why not? He was certainly capable This man of all people was certainly skilled enough to do it. Why does he not do it until we see him going out in Acts chapter 13? It is because churches plant churches. Even though he was certainly able, Paul waited until the church recognized his calling and until the Holy Spirit led them to send him out. Now, there are many other examples that I could share with you. There's a lot of times I've seen churches planted poorly, but I simply want to make sure that this is locked in our brains, that this one idea is very central to what we see happening in the Bible. In Romans 10, when Paul is speaking about missions work, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. And I really love when Paul does this because rhetorical questions punch you in the face a little bit. They wake you up from your stupor and they really make you think, wait a minute, Am I supposed to answer this? Sometimes I will ask a rhetorical question and my kids will answer me and I'm saying, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you. I am telling you. I want you to think about this. Here, Paul asks a bunch of questions and he's doing so in order to prove a point to these people. He says, how long then will they call, or how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? There is a step here that many people seem to overlook. That notice Romans 10, Paul is putting the onus on both goers and the senders. They're not supposed to go unless they are first sent. Missions and church planting requires both of these things. So I am incredibly thankful that North Shore Baptist was seeking to plant a church on Long Island for at least six years before we planted this congregation. And I'm really thankful that they determined to send Mike and Steve and I out from them. And I am incredibly thankful that they said to me, Caleb, you can ask anybody in the church to see if they will go with you. Anybody you want, invite them to join. And I am thankful that by the wisdom given to them by God, the Holy Spirit, the elders of NSBC were faithful senders. And we, likewise, we want to send out our own church someday when the Lord leads. Which brings us to point number three, sending churches should be healthy churches. I have read many books on church planting. And to be honest, I don't mean to sound prideful, but most of them are terrible. And the reason that most of them are terrible is that most of them do not actually talk about what the word of God has to say about church planting. Most of them are problematic for many reasons, but one of the main problems I have with most of these books is that they attempt to establish artificial thresholds to determine when is it right for you to plant a church. When you reach 100 members, that's when you should plant a church. 200 members, that's when you should definitely plant a church. Or maybe it's financial. It's when you reach 125% of your budget, you need to go ahead and uh, plant a church. When you reach 150% of your church financial needs, then you send out a church. When is it that we determine to plant a church? The thing that these books fail to take into account is that the church in Antioch was not primarily focused on planting. It was focused on spiritual growth. Look at verses two and three again. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that's a cornerstone, we see that they are definitely pious. They're definitely committed to uh, the church disciplines. 
And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Paul and Barnabas were committed servants. They were committed teachers in the church. And it is only when God made it clear that they were to leave, that is when they were sent. The church in Antioch was only about a year old at this point. Now, I want, I want you to notice that this very young church was a very healthy one. One of the greatest issues in our culture today is the problem of extended adolescence. Several years ago, I read an article from Scientific American that uh, was one of those things you read when you're waiting at the dentist's office. And uh, it, it was an article entitled, When 25 is the New 18. And in that article, it highlighted how most young people do not mature in any meaningful way for six to eight years after graduating high school. Now, this is a troubling thing, and as somebody who has shepherded high school students as a youth pastor for seven years of my life, I can tell you I don't want people to remain in that state of life. I desire for them to grow up. I can say that I do not want millions of Americans refusing to move past that point in their development. You probably don't have to think too hard to think of somebody who is in this category, somebody who has refused to grow up. But this is not just a problem with young people in the world. It's easy for people who are now past that stage to kind of look back and be like, oh, get off my lawn, right? But this is not just a problem with young people in the world. This is an issue in the church. And this has always been an issue in the church because when people get saved in the book of Acts, in this location, what we see is their trajectory of their walk with Christ goes from zero to 60 really fast. For these believers in this church at Antioch, there seems to be a rapid movement towards spiritual maturity. Now, allow me to point out a couple evidences of their strength as a body. First of all, they were a generous church. If you go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 27, when they heard that Jerusalem was just about to get hit hard with a big famine, we read these words. The disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. One sign of spiritual maturity is the willingness to just let go of your savings, to let go of your own financial plan, to let go of your budget, to help the needs of others. As you know, the world loves money. I literally had somebody in my office Friday afternoon uh, that I was meeting with, an unsaved man. And this man said to me at one point in our conversation, well, you know that money makes the world go round. It doesn't. God makes the world go round. But the way that the world perceives money, it views it as their God. They desire it. They hunger for it. And the point I'm trying to make it, it, by saying this is that the more aware we become of who God is and how God can provide, the more we are able to rightly evaluate the value of a dollar. The church at Antioch showed its rapid maturity in part by its generosity. The church in Jerusalem needs money. Let's give according to our ability. And they were also mature in the fact that they were a unified church. Notice the names in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and he lists five, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now we already know that Barnabas was a Jew from Cyprus, and we know that Saul was a Jew from Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. But there are three other men who occupy positions of leadership here in this church, and we want to know what can we learn of them. 
First of all, I want you to see something important here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Do we have that one up there on the screen? If you see 2 Peter 1, 1, it says, notice, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is that guy? Simeon Peter? Yes, this is the same guy, Peter, who put his foot in his mouth all the time, the same Peter who denied Christ, the same Peter who was restored by Jesus, the same Peter who would eventually be the main leader of the church. This is Peter, Simon Peter, but for some reason here, it calls him Simeon. He writes his own name differently than we normally see it in the scripture. Now, the question is, why does he do that? Well, it's helpful for us to remember that we do this kind of thing all the time. Some people who are named Henry go by Hank. Why do they do that? I literally have no idea, but they do. James sometimes will go by Jim. People who, for some reason that I cannot understand, who are named Robert, will occasionally go by Bob. How did we get there? No one knows. But we are seeing here a variation of a name. Simeon and Simon are variations of the same name that were often interchanged in Israel. And we know that the church in Antioch was started when Christian brothers from Cyprus and Cyrene arrived there. That's what we see in Acts chapter 11. So many scholars actually look at this name, Simon or Simeon, called Niger, and they believe that this is the same guy who is from Cyrene. Niger is a Latin word for dark or black. And so what we see here is that this man is probably from Cyprus, which is a city in Africa. Why does that matter? Well, first of all, many scholars believe that this is not the first time we've seen this man in the Bible. In Luke chapter 23, verse 26, it says, when we read about the crucifixion of Jesus, we find these words. It says, and they led him away and they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We also know from Mark chapter 15 and a couple of other references that Simon of Cyrene had two sons, Rufus and Alexander, who both became believers and who became leaders in the early church. So it would not surprise me if this man is literally the guy who assisted Jesus in carrying his cross up the hill of Golgotha so that he might be crucified. Only then to eventually carry his own cross daily for the rest of his life as a missionary in Antioch. I'm inclined to think that this is the same man, but honestly, we won't know until we are in heaven, so I'm not going to land too heavily on that because there's just not enough information to ascertain the veracity of that claim. But then there's Lucius of Cyrene. He has a Latin name, and he is from North Africa. He's from Cyrene. And Finally, we have Menaean, and this man had been a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This was the uncle of Herod. So remember last week we heard about Herod um, uh, Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa got killed by worms. That's not the guy that we're talking about here. Herod the Tetrarch was his uncle. He had very limited power and very limited authority, but he had grown up in the household of Herod the Great. And in order to say that you were a lifelong friend of somebody, it stands to reason that this guy Menaean was a man of wealth and a man of influence who had enough power to be able to hang out in the household of Herod the Great. This man was probably significantly higher on the totem pole of society than any of these other guys. And also we see that because he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who is older and who is now dead, it means that he was probably an older man than any of these other guys in the room. So what we see happening here is very significant. 
This church has five leaders who are of various ages, they are of various nationalities, they are of various ethnicities, and they are of various social standings. Yet, they led the church in unity. In 1965, a Baptist pastor named Kyle Hasselden, he wrote an editorial that was published in the New York Times. Imagine that, a Baptist pastor actually being published in the New York Times. Wouldn't happen today, probably. But this man published an article that was the most quoted article of the century. It was entitled, 11 a.m. Sunday is our most segregated hour. In it, he famously grieved the racial divides that extended all throughout the 60s and sadly that exist in many places now, today. In the book of James, we read about the sin of partiality. And that sin can be a sin that we have for a variety of reasons. We can divide over nationalities. If we aren't careful, we can become nationalistic. I will share this with you um, simply because I think it's of great value, uh, but it is a troubling thing. When I was a youth pastor at a church in Indiana, there was a man there who, when, uh, when he heard about some trouble going on in the Middle East, his answer to this problem was, you know what, we just need to nuke them all and let God sort it out. That is not a biblical perspective. That is an evil, nationalistic superiority that we should not have against any other nation. God has not loved America more than he has loved people from other places. God sets his love on the church, which is international and has no borders or boundaries. We can divide over all sorts of things like ethnicity. We've seen that in our country's history. It is a dangerous and evil divide. We can divide over social status. This is a severe issue in our culture today, that people who are wealthy do not want to spend time with people who are not, and vice versa is true as well. There is not a fundamental glory in being poor. Those people are just as susceptible to sin as the wealthy, and the sin goes both ways. We have a tendency to naturally desire division. But a church that is unified displays godly principles. And what we see happening here is that this church is diverse yet unified. And by the grace of God, I am thankful to say we are seeing a reflection of that here. And that is just honestly a taste of the reflection of what we will experience in heaven when every nation and tongue and tribe and people of every social standing will be surrounding that throne, worshiping the Lord together, not claiming anything that they had here on earth was of any value but only that Christ is of great value. So by the grace of God, I hope that our church will continue to overflow with love towards one another because of the love we have in Christ. This church in Antioch was strong. It was a mature church. But the question is, how on earth did they get there after just one year of existence? And you might say, well, because they had the greatest Christian who ever lived as one of their teachers, and we clearly don't have that here at our church, so we're not going to grow in that kind of maturity. Well, that's not fully the answer. We get the beginning of the answer in Acts 11, chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, when it says, So Barnabas went to Tro uh, Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And there we see that they have continued to teach these people for a year. It's not about the who. It's about the fact that the people were hearing the word of God and receiving the word of God, and that was causing substantial growth. The word of God, as we heard earlier from Gideon, is powerful. It is active. As we heard this morning, it is capable of making us wise. So the reason that RGF puts a premium on this kind of ministry, preaching and teaching ministries over any other program or any other kind of 
thing we could fill our calendar with, the reason we do this rather than a lot of other events is because I want you to be strong in the Lord. I desire for our church to be filled with mature believers. And I will not mature without having my nose in in the book, and neither will you. It is the teaching of the word of God that brings zeal. It is the teaching of the word of God that gives us the ability to stand firm. One of my childhood friends uh, wrote to me on Facebook while I was at seminary, and he kind of was poking fun at me for being in seminary and telling me that I would never have any zeal or passion for Christ because seminary is spiritual cemetery. That's what he said. Uh, And to an extent, he's actually not wrong. And uh, I actually, I know many people who have gone to seminary and have lost a passion for Jesus. There is a kind of knowledge that puffs up. But when your eyes behold the glory of the Lord more fully as he truly is, there is real joy and there is fear and there is zeal and there is hope in equal measure. There is something that seminary can do for you, can help you learn and grow and and develop your mind. It is not a requirement for pastoral ministry because one does not need to know everything in order to be a pastor. You can't know everything. It's impossible. So I hope that the Lord will eventually allow us to plant a church But in the meantime, I want to do what we are called to do and commanded to do in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, when it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That is my desire, is that we might be able to walk arm in arm together towards heaven so that when we are all standing there, you can be presented mature in Christ. The author of Hebrews chided his audience sharply, Uh, by saying, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Don't misunderstand that. That is intended to be like a punch to the solar plexus of these people's pride. He is telling them, you're children, grow up. So what about you is the question. Are you experiencing extended adolescence in your walk with Jesus? Are you experiencing that kind of dragging your feet in terms of spiritual maturity? Are you still in need of milk? Are you still an infant? Are you what Paul calls a child? Or are you ready for the deep end? Notice the things that Hebrews tells us makes us move forward. He says that it would be knowing and trusting the basic principles of the oracles of God. Do you actually know them and believe them? Not just intellectually have them in your brain. Do you actually believe the gospel? Do you actually believe the simple basics of the good news? He also says that we are to be skilled in the word of righteousness, that that is what it looks like to be mature in Christ. So I lovingly say to all of us, myself included here, to not only view ourselves as a church plant, but to view ourselves as people who need to individually and collectively mature in Christ. We need to hear the words of Colossians 2, 6 through 7 and apply them, which says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Gideon said it very well. This is not a one-time event. This is a daily carrying of our cross. He says, continuing, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So it's not enough just to get your roots down there. It's to daily be built up and edified in him and be abounding in thanksgiving. Which brings us now to our fourth and final point about church planting, which is churches ordain pastors and missionaries. What makes somebody a pastor? 
Is it training? Is it intelligence? Is it a threshold of godliness? Is it a piece of paper from a seminary? Obviously, none of these answers are correct. No, it's that the church recognizes the call of God on their life, and the church sets them apart for ministry. This is the pattern we see here in the book of Acts, chapter 13, and we are going to see this explicitly commanded whenever the topic of ordaining pastors arises throughout the rest of the New Testament. And this really matters. This is very significant because there are many people who are in pulpits today illegitimately. They feel as though they have some claim on ministry because of their gifting or because somebody has told them they should be a pastor. They feel as though they have some claim on ministry for other reasons than what the word of God shows us. In order to be a pastor, according to scripture, one must be recognized as having a very particular set of character qualities. And I think we would have a lot fewer major failures in the churches today if we would just make pastors according to the word of God. We find two lists, one in 1 Timothy and one in Titus. Both of these inform us of what we are to look for when we make a pastor. But I want you to see here that Paul and Barnabas were already functioning as pastors in this church. They are not being ordained here to be pastors. They were not being set apart here to be shepherds of this congregation. That had already happened. Rather, they were being set apart for something similar but different. There is truth in saying that we all have a calling to evangelize. I understand the term when people say we are all missionaries. But there is a distinct category that the Bible shows us of people who are set apart to be missionaries. They are seemingly unique positions in the Bible where here these people who were already pastors are now set apart for something completely different. So that's what we see happening officially in this church. The church is deputizing these people to go out under their authority to plant new churches wherever the Lord allows. So I want to just close out here with three salient truths and that will bring us home. First, be careful who you ordain as pastors. I'm not going to say a lot in this regard, but as an elder-led, congregationally-approved church, you are responsible for voting on who will lead this body. And there may come a day when the Lord chooses to take me away. I could get hit by a bus to, tomorrow morning. It's very possible. And at that point, there will be many decisions that must be made about replacing me. And in the event that that would take place, you need to know the process you need to make sure that you're not waiting until something like that occurs in order to know what we are called to do. Before God, you are responsible to ensure that anybody who holds the position of elder should be faithful to all of the standards set forth in Scripture. Now, I know this probably sounds obvious, and I realize that I have spoken about this many times before, but I do this because one of the quickest ways to destabilize a body is to instill division and immaturity into its leadership. The second point here that I want to bring forth from what we see happening in Acts 13 here is that you must be certain of your motives before planting a church. Why do we plant churches? What is our ultimate goal? I was speaking with one man at a pastor's gathering. This was a few years back, four or five years ago. And he was explaining to me, uh, he was from the D.C. area, he was telling me all about how his church had these big plans that within the next five years, they were going to plant five churches. And they were going to mandate that those churches that they plant, each plant five churches within five years of their existence. And that each of those church plants would also do the same. And so on ad infinitum forever. And what we see taking place in this man's purpose and his plan is that within 25 years at that rate, there should be around 3,000 churches. I'm not good at math. I hopefully got that somewhat correct. 
This man even drew a little diagram. He drew a piece of paper with his church building at the very top and then little branches out from each of these other church plants to show me that his church was now at the top of this massive pyramid of church plants. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in theory. There's nothing wrong with the desire to see this entire country and the world filled with more churches. There's nothing wrong with that desire if the desire is for the glory of God. But if I was not a Christian, I would have viewed this man as nothing more than a pyramid salesman. He was, he was just selling me on something. Maybe I'm reading into his motives too much, but I didn't really get the sense that he was in it for the glory of God. He never once mentioned Jesus. He never once mentioned the purpose of the church. To him, this was all about a business plan. And it makes it seem like there is no vibrancy or desire to actually expand the glory of the Lord. Now again, I could be reading into his motives, which we should not do. But I say this to say, we want to make sure that our motives are correct. I can't change anybody else's, but we here in the body need to ensure the reasons we are sending churches are the right ones, that we desire to see God's glory expand and his kingdom move forth. And we're not in this for appearances. It can look really good for a church to plant other churches. It can make us look more healthy than we actually are, but that is the wrong reason to plant. Our motives always need to be set forth uh, for the sake of ensuring that we are not self-seeking in any way. Finally, never send out a missionary to plant churches that you would not want as a pastor at your own church. Now, we don't know a lot about these other church leaders. We know their names. We know a little bit about their backgrounds. We already covered those things today. But I'm willing to bet you that none of them were as skilled as Paul when it came to teaching. And I don't think that's a bet that I would lose. None of them were as capable at proclaiming the gospel as Paul. This man wrote the book of Romans. Are you kidding me? You sent that guy out of your church? Yes, they sent him out. And what about Barnabas? This guy is literally the most encouraging man in scripture, so much so that they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas so that they could say he was the son of encouragement. None of these guys are that encouraging. And what do they do? They send him out. They remove him from their own body to the detriment considerably to their own people. They won't have him in their lives anymore. They sent out their best. One sad reality is that many missions agencies and church planting organizations have incredibly low bars for missionary requirements. Churches have a tendency to send out church planters or missionaries that they would never allow in their own pulpits. Allow me to give you one more real-life example. Two years ago, I went to a church planting big interdenominational gathering in the city. And most of the people that were there were pastors of established churches who wanted to learn more about how to send out church plants. The speaker began by asking them if there was a guy in their church who got under their skin. Is there somebody there that just, he rubs you the wrong way? He's a Christian, but he just steps on your toes all the time. Pastors, do you feel that? I feel that. There's always people in my church like that. And he continued and he basically said, you know, maybe there's somebody who, who always wants to try something different, something that you don't really appreciate or like. I don't have the quote memorized, so I'm definitely paraphrasing here, but then he said something like this. If you have a young guy with energy like that, you need to send that guy out as a church planter. Otherwise, he's just going to cause division in your church because he's going to gain favor with some people in your congregation, but if you send him out, then it's a win-win situation. You get to leave your church intact, and he gets to do things his own way. Win-win. That's not at all what we see taking place here in the book of Acts. In chapter 13, the leaders of the church were unified. 
They were on a completely same page. They were so unified that they had an expectation that Paul and Barnabas were going to go and carry out the legacy of teaching of the church at Antioch as they planted other churches. They expected that what was happening here is now going to happen over there. It's our goal to raise up leaders within this body so that that they will be healthy and that we as a church will be healthy so that when the Lord allows us, then we can send people out faithfully. I already hear somebody questioning a little bit in their minds, well, what about missionaries who are not going out to plant churches? What about them? If we never send missionaries out that are not fit to be pastors, then should we ever send women to the field? I know there's a lot of questions like this, and thank you for asking. Uh, At RGF, we have three missionaries we support, and I'll explain the categories each one of them are in very briefly. The Shrek family is the only one that is set apart to plant a new church. They are currently attempting to plant a church in Mestre in Italy. They are also shepherding a church that already has been planted by another missionary who is now back in the States in Udine. And at this point, they are our only missionaries who are set apart for the specific task of starting a new congregation. We also support Rachel Wessel, and she's in training right now in Mexico, but she is not in training to plant her own church. She will not be the pastor of a church. Rather, she is uh, purposefully training right now for a support role along others who are going to be planting or operating a church that already exists. So she is going to function as a much-needed hand to serve alongside those who are actually leading that congregation. And finally, Alejandro Gonzalez, he's not planting a church either. His role is to be on these campuses proclaiming the good news and then funneling them into good churches that already exist. He is functionally an evangelist in that sense. So to quickly recap, here's what we have learned from today's text. Missions equals church planting. Secondly, churches plant churches. Third, church ascending churches should be healthy churches. And fourth, churches ordain pastors and missionaries. This is not something we are to um, send out to missions organizations to do all of that work for us. Churches make that determination. So with all of this now in our heads, let's pray that the Lord would encourage us and apply this to our lives. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us so much about what you have called us to do. Lord, I pray that we would get these things right, that we would have a strong, healthy ecclesiology, that the gospel would be at the center of our church at all times and in every way. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be wise, that we would not be a judgmental people looking out and condemning all those who do things differently, but simply seeking to do things rightly ourselves. Lord, I pray if there is anything that I have said today that has been a discouragement to anyone here, that you would please correct those things in their heart. Lord, I pray that as the word of God has gone forth, that you would retrain our thinking to be accurate according to the word. So Lord, I pray that today you would give us joy in the Lord, that you would give us a desire for your kingdom, and that as we see your hand moving and your work occurring on this island, that we would always attribute that to you and give all glory and honor and praise where it belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.